As you can well imagine, my thoughts in recent times have been fixed heavenward. I think it's obvious why that would be. The Bible does have quite a bit to say about heaven, though I would admit that information on heaven, that is detailed information, does seem to be scarce. But if you look closely at the Word of God and you study it well, you'll find that there's a lot of information that is given about heaven. Just the other day, someone was discussing with me the passing of my wife. He was commiserating with me, but he made a statement that I fundamentally disagreed with, which was that whenever a person passes away, we really don't know what happens after that. I said, well, actually we do. We do know what happens after that. Because the scripture tells us. The Bible is very clear on this. If you depart this life in Christ, clothed with his righteousness, trusting in his finished work, you go straight to heaven when you die. The Apostle Paul knew this when he talked in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about leaving off this tabernacle, this tent, and putting on a house that is eternal, not made with hands. A house that is eternal in the heavens. In that passage, he said, while we're here at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But he said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But he also said this in that passage. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. No purgatory in between. No limbo, no halfway house, no soul sleep, present with the Lord. That was the testimony that was given to the thief, wasn't it, on the cross. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. As soon as he died, he would be with the Lord. That's what happens to a believer. That's not what happens to an unbeliever. Everybody who dies is not saved. Everybody who is put into the grave is not ready. And the Bible is equally clear on this matter. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. There is a heaven to gain, yes, but there's also a hell to shun. And you can't have one without the other. And the Bible speaks about both. And so the question comes to us, man dieth and wasteth away, yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Where is he? He's somewhere. He's somewhere. And I'm glad when my dear wife breathed her last on earth, and I watched her do so, I didn't see this, but I believe it happened that she entered heaven. Her soul went to be with Christ, which is far better. That's the future for every Christian. Someone said every believer has a homing instinct for heaven. I don't know if you know much about homing pigeons. There are people in where I come from in Northern Ireland and all over the UK, in fact, who love to keep pigeons. They keep them in a loft. They're called homing pigeons. 
And every once in a while they'll let them loose. And they'll fly off. And sometimes they go away far distances. But they have a homing instinct. And they make their way back to that pigeon loft. To their owner. Come close of day. Every believer has a homing instinct for heaven. And therefore the more we know about heaven. The better is going to be our preparation for it. Now, when you're going to make any journey, even here on the earth, you better be sure as to where you're going. The terrible thing, you're driving down the road and someone stops you and says, where are you going? Well, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just going anywhere. I don't know. That's not good. If you have someone in that condition, they normally need to have the car impounded, taken from them, and they need to be sent home. Making any journey, you better be sure of your destination. And if we're wise, we will know that God is preparing for us a place in another world where the light's going to shine on us as it never did in this life. There they need no light of the sun or of the moon because the Lamb is the light thereof. That's heaven. And in Revelation chapter 7, the portion I read with you a few minutes ago, we have a rather heartwarming vision of heaven. And we're introduced there to an international community of people who are to be found there in heaven. And the scripture is very clear, not only as to who they are, but where they have come from, and the means by which they got there, and what they're presently employed in doing. And who would not want to have such a glimpse of heaven, except those whose hearts are not prepared for heaven? In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is one by the name of Mr. Standfast, who says, I see myself now at the end of my journey. And he's standing halfway across the Jordan River. I see myself now at the end of my journey. The thoughts of what I am going to, and of the conduct that waits for me on the other side, doth lie as a glowing coal at my heart. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight, and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. I trust that the Lord would kindle a glowing coal within our hearts for heaven. I've heard it said, well, that person is so heavenly minded is of no earthly good. Well, I want to tell you, I've never met anybody like that. And I could only wish I was more heavenly minded so that I might do more earthly good. You see, in Colossians chapter 3, we're told, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. We are to seek the things that are above. We are to be heavenly minded. 
Now, there are certain things about heaven that we know. It's the dwelling place of God. You see the prayers of Solomon in the Old Testament. And in the Chronicles, you see him there before the altar of God. He's praying, and he talks a lot about God being in his dwelling place. Heaven, heaven, thy dwelling place. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father, which art in heaven. There is a place called heaven. And while heaven is preeminently God's dwelling place, it is also the eternal home of those who have been redeemed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you are redeemed, if you do have Christ in your heart dwelling by faith, you'll have that homing instinct for glory. And that instinct has been reflected in the hymnology of the church. You know, in certain hymn books, they have sections, just as our own hymnal does, that deal with the afterlife, with heaven. Sometimes that section might be referred to as the life to come. And there might be subsections in in the hymn books, such as aspirations after heaven, or heaven anticipated, or the redeemed in heaven. And all of these hymns have to do with heaven. And it's good to sing those hymns. It's good to have the attitude that Paul had in Philippians 1 verse 23 when he said he longed and desired to be with Christ, which is far better. And the thought in the Greek is it's far, far, far better. The greatest experience that you can have here on earth is as nothing compared to heaven. King David in Psalm 16, a wonderful messianic psalm, says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And whilst every Christian, through the atoning death of the Lord Jesus, can enjoy a certain measure of the presence of the Lord here in this life, we can refer to heaven as the place of God's immediate presence. And the glories of that place cannot be told. I was thinking this week about a hymn. And by the way, I find hymns very difficult when we're uh, in a situation such as I'm in right now. It's hard to sing the hymns because hymns by their very nature are emotional. And there's the music and the hymns and the words. And sometimes I set out to sing the words and I get about halfway through the line and that's it. I can't sing anymore. The emotion takes over. But quite often it's not a sad emotion. It's a happy emotion. There's a joy in the contemplation of heaven. And thinking about what God has prepared for those who love him. We speak of the land of the blessed that country so bright and so fair and oft are its glories confessed what must it be to be there to be there to be there oh what must it be to be there I've done a lot of contemplating of that over the last number of weeks I see an empty chair in our living room. 
and I think about the fact that my dear departed wife is in the presence of Jesus. That was our home where I now live. That was our home. It's not her home anymore. Her stuff is there. Her clothing hangs in the closets. Her shoes are some places on the floor. Some of them left the way she left them. They're her pots and pans. They're all her things that the women folk would understand are connected with living in a house. She doesn't need any of those things anymore. They're not, they're not hers anymore. She doesn't need them. She's not there anymore. She's home. She's home. And in the midst of my sadness, which is great, and my tears, which are many, I am really thankful that she's in the presence of the Lord. She used to sit at that piano, as you know, and play. I love to hear her play. Love to hear her play at home as well. I'll never hear that again. If they have pianos in heaven, she'll have one. Of that, I am sure. But one thing I do know, she'll be enjoying singing there with the celestial choirs. Because that's what they do in heaven. They sing praise to the Lamb. What a thought that is. Beyond our comprehension. Beyond our understanding. We only see through a glass or a mirror darkly. But one day we will see face to face. But these things are great mysteries to us now. But yet they are great realities. And so you come to Revelation chapter 7. And the Lord is giving us there a glimpse of what heaven is like. And that's what I want to contemplate with you today. We're just going to have a glimpse at glory. By the way, if you go back to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, you'll find that the Lord actually opened heaven to John the Beloved. He let him see, if you like, into glory. Just read that verse, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, I beheld, or I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. A door was opened in heaven, and he had a heavenly vision. He saw the things that are listed then and referred to in the rest of the chapter 4 and in the chapter 5. But when you come to Revelation chapter 7, there's this divine scene. And I'll not read all these verses again, but you can notice that from verse 9 down to verse 12, there is a description of heaven and the activities that are taking place there. God has graciously revealed this to us. He's given us a glimpse into this great scene. And of the things that are listed there, I would just simply mention five. And I'll be as brief as I can without making this into a series today, though it could become a series ultimately. But this actual message, I want to deal with five things about heaven. First of all, let's think about the presence. The presence 
in heaven. And particularly, I want us to think about the congregation designated here. Revelation chapter 7 tells us in verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Now, it doesn't say God couldn't number them, because God does number them. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But it's us who are incapable of coming up with the number. A multitude which no man could number. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. You'll notice of this congregation designated here that they are a multitudinous people. Don't we think a lot of times about God's people as being a little tiny rump, just a small remnant? It is true that straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it, that broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But I want to tell you, in heaven there's a multitude that no man can number. There is a massive number in glory. They're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we learn from this the vastness of the love of God, because that's why every one of them is there, because God loved them. Now, if God were strictly just, there would be nobody in heaven but the elect angels and God himself. Because God cannot abide sin. We're told in the Scripture that he can't even look upon sin. We're told in the book of Revelation that of heaven not that defileth shall enter in. There's no sin in heaven, but there are sinners. Sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. We know today every one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.23, we've sinned. All of us have sinned. And we constantly come short of the glory of God. We're children of wrath. We're children of disobedience. So if we're ever to be in heaven, it's going to be because of God's mercy. And that's the case with these people. The Lord could have decided not to save anybody. But he chose to save a great multitude. You think of that in heaven there's a multitudinous people. Christ died for their sins. The Holy Spirit brought them to conviction of that sin and brought them to faith in Christ. They're there. They're there because God promised to bring them there. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He told Abraham, he says, Now, I want you to look up toward heaven. I want you to number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said, If you can number those stars, that's how many your descendants will be. That's what your seed will be. And in response to that, Abraham believed God and he reckoned him for righteousness. He counted it unto him for righteousness. What was the promise? It was the promise of a great multitude of believers. And true believers, we learn from the New Testament, are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. 
Galatians chapter 3 makes that very clear that if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's children and your heirs according to the promise. So those that are in heaven, the great multitude, are the spiritual children of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile, redeemed by the blood of Christ. This congregation is designated, they're a multitudinous people, but they're also a multinational people. I like to think of this, the international nature of the church. There are people in glory from everywhere. Even from Timbuktu, who I've never been there. There are people in heaven from every corner of the globe. South Americans, North Americans, Europeans, Australians, Africans, Orientals. You're not supposed to say that, I guess. Asians. People from everywhere are in heaven. What a great thing it is when you meet people from the other side of the world. They might be of a different color, totally different culture, but if they believe in Christ, there's immediately a bond that you recognize with them. Once in the town of Blantyre in Scotland, which is just a few miles from where we lived, that was the hometown of David Livingston, the missionary. June and I were taking a, a little trip around the memorial there to David Livingston. And as a fellow came toward us who was obviously an African. And he smiled at me and he began to speak to me and he told me that he was so happy to be there because he was finally getting to see the place, the birthplace of the man who brought the gospel to his people. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Blantyre. And well, we were in Blantyre, Scotland. He said, yeah, but Blantyre in Africa. A place that was so named because of Livingston's influence there on the mission field. And that man was rejoicing. Because a man from Scotland took the gospel away over to his land. And many became believers as a result. But... I only met that man the one time and immediately there was a tremendous bond between us. He's a Christian. He's a believer. He loves the same saviour that I love. He's a different colour from me. He's a different uh, culture. doesn't matter. We're one in Christ Jesus. And so these that are in heaven, they're described as a great multitude from where? Verse 9. Of all nations. Think about that. All nations. There's no room for racism in the church. All kindreds, all people, all tongues, they all speak different languages and dialects, but they're all there together, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and all of them are clothed with white robes and have got palms in their hands. You see here, the impartiality of the love of God, in a sense, because in this world you've got, sadly, a lot of discrimination, a lot of racism, and a lot of reverse racism, by the way. You know, this nonsense that you can't be racist against people who are Caucasian, that's not true. 
You can be racist against any nation. And it's wrong. And we know that governments have introduced legislation to try to eradicate this. Some of it not effective at all. Some of it really racist in itself. But you see that in the heart of man, because he's a sinner, he's got hatred and suspicion and hostility against some people just because they're a different color or a different culture. But in heaven, the redeemed are from every nation under heaven. Every people, every tongue. You know why that is? That's because of Christian missions. That's why. Because of Christian missions. Don't listen to these people who try to tell you that it was an awful thing for people to go to India or to Africa or to China and to civilize those people and to preach the gospel to them. There's a lot of nonsense talked about that. I want to tell you the gospel has done good everywhere it's gone. It has elevated societies everywhere it has gone. When John Patton of Scotland went to the South Sea Islands, the people there were cannibals. They used to kill their enemies and eat them. When John Patton's wife and baby died there when he arrived on the mission field, he had to lie day and night across her grave in case the natives would come and dig up their bodies and eat them. But you know what happened through John Patton's ministry? The king of the cannibals was converted. And people in their multitudes were saved by the grace of God. And you have a gospel influence today in places like Tonga and Fiji and the South Sea Islands because of men like that great missionary of the cross. In the Old Testament, we know that God's saving activity was limited mostly to the nation of Israel. There were some exceptions. Rahab, Ruth the Moabites, Naaman the Syrian, various others. But then, of course, there was this great reaching out of the purpose of God beyond Israel to the Gentiles, and I'm ever so glad that the gospel includes us. Every nation, every tongue, every kindred, There's no distinction as far as God is concerned between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here you have the presence, the presence of the congregation that's designated. But most of all we want to concentrate on heaven and the presence which involves the consummation described. See, there's a great consummation here. This multitude in heaven is composed of people who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. See that in verse 9. This great multitude that no man could number of all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues stood before the throne. That's the throne of God and before the Lamb. The Bible often describes heaven, you will know, as Something that is 
in terms of the absence of certain things. For example, it tells us in Revelation 21 verse 4 that there will be no more death, there's no more sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. The Bible's talking about the things that are not there. There is no night there. They always say about New York City, don't they, the Big Apple, and nobody sleeps there. Well, that's definitely true of heaven. There's no night there. Neither shall there be any more curse. Revelation 22, verse 3. There's no more pain. No more suffering. All the things that the Bible describes are in terms of the absence of certain things. But for you and I, as we think about heaven, what is attractive about it is not just the absence of certain things that we associate it with negativity here on the earth. We don't like pain. We don't like suffering. We don't like sorrow. We don't like death. We don't like mourning and sadness. But the thing about heaven that's so wonderfully true for the Christian, what makes heaven what it is, is not so much the absence of the suffering, but the wonderful presence of Christ. That's what makes heaven what it is. These people that are there are standing before God uncondemned. They're wearing white robes, which speaks of purity. And we'll come to that. Heaven is really going to be heaven for the Christian because he's in the presence of Christ. No matter where on earth we dwell, on mountaintop or in the dale, the hymn says, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. And that's true, but the great thing about heaven itself is it's all about Christ. Now notice that description, the Lamb. I've said already it's used of the Lord over 20 times in Revelation. It's a beautiful title. The Lamb speaks to us of something, doesn't it? It speaks to us of sacrifice. Everywhere you turn in the Old Testament, when it involves lambs, there's sacrifice. There's the morning and evening sacrifice. There's the lamb offered at the Passover. There's Abel's sacrifice. So many references to the lamb. When we get to heaven, we're going to see the Lord Jesus, who once died on the cross. He was like a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.19 When John preached the gospel, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The sacrifice. And what a joy it's going to be for us to see the Lord Jesus face to face, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Won't that be a wonderful thing? You know, when we get to glory, the Bible says that we're going to follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. On this earth, you have celebrities, so-called. Some of them, you wonder how they ever got to be so famous. But anyway, there are people who would almost pay anything to see them and go to touch them. You'd think they'd seen God when they see them pass by somewhere. And they have a following And anywhere they go, there'll be people following them all over the place. 
Famous golfers. If they're some of the best golfers, when they play on the course, there's big crowds following them all around. They follow them wherever they go. Watch every move, every shot. When we get to heaven, Revelation 14, verse number 4 tells us, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. This is following after the Lamb. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Samuel Rutherford, the great covenanter, once said, Heaven and Christ are the same thing. To be in heaven is to be with Christ. And to be with Christ is heaven. That's what it's all about. The Lord Jesus is our heaven. And his death is the only door to heaven. And this is the consummation that's described here. This is the the final thing of all the, the desires and yearnings of our hearts here on earth. We want to see the Lord Jesus, don't we? The hymn says, Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. But just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. That's what heaven is all about. And yes, I am looking forward to seeing my loved ones in heaven. I was just reading last night a lovely sermon by J.C. Ryle. And he was talking about the joy of those who are in heaven. They've met all the Old Testament saints. They've met the prophets. They've met the apostles. They've met the heroes of church history. They've met the martyrs. And they've met their loved ones that have gone before. And I don't know what that means in terms of how it all happens. But I do know when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize the saints. Do you recall when Jesus said, Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? What would be the point of telling people they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if when they see them, they don't know who they are? Oh, we'll know who they are instantly. When my wife got to glory, she recognized Spurgeon right away. And I'm sure she would have said, my, my husband preached a lot of your stuff. She met the saints. She's met, meeting the saints of all ages. How do you know we'll know each other? David said of that little baby that died, he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him. I'll go to him where he is. Will he know him? Of course he'll know him. You remember when Moses and Elijah were up there on the mount with Jesus in in Matthew 17? And Peter, James, and John were there. They recognized Elijah and Moses. Moses had died. Moses was in his glorified state. They knew Moses. When we get to heaven, we're going to know the saints. We'll know one another. Then shall we know 
even as also we are known, Paul said. What a great thing that is. And it'll be wonderful to see all the saints. And it'll be wonderful to see the martyrs and all those that stood for Christ through the years. But I long to see my Savior first of all. Because those saints didn't die for me. The prophets didn't die for me. The apostles didn't die for me. Jesus died for me. He took my sins and my sorrows and made them his very own. He bore that burden to Calvary where he suffered and died alone. He loved me and gave himself for me. And while I see him now by faith, I have never seen him as he is. But the Bible says we shall see him as he is. What will that be? That'll be heaven. Because that's what heaven is. The presence is what makes heaven. But there's also the provision. What is that provision? You see it here in the clothing of the saints. They're clothed in white robes. Revelation 7 verse 9. Now white, obviously, in Scripture speaks of purity. Always speaks of cleanness, doesn't it? Nice and clean and white. Nothing unclean will ever enter into heaven. Revelation 22 tells us in verse 27. But which one of us is clean enough in himself to stand before God? Job said even the heavens are not clean in his sight. Habakkuk said that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. We're all as an unclean thing. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. So what do we need to get to heaven? We need a spotless righteousness. We need a purity that doesn't come from ourselves, but which is provided by him. What is that provision? It's the white robe. We read in the Old Testament of one who was the high priest. In in, uh, the book of Zechariah. Joshua the high priest. He's clothed in filthy garments. You know what happens? The Lord takes away those filthy garments and he clothes him with pure, clean garments. They're called the garments of salvation in the book of Isaiah. They're called the robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61 verse 10. Are you wearing it today? The Lord put it in terms of a wedding garment. In Matthew chapter 22, he gave this great parable of the wedding feast and the kingdom of heaven is like that wedding feast. But he said the only one who's fit to go into that feast is the one who's got the wedding garment on. There's a lot of people in the world trying to weave a garment of their own righteousness. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And they realized for the first time that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to try to make themselves coats or coverings or aprons. That wasn't sufficient to cover them. Blood had to be shed. The Lord clothed them with the coats of animals. Sacrifice. Blood was shed. In order to provide them with a covering. It's a wonderful type of what God has done for us in salvation. The sacrifice of Christ has provided us with a perfect robe of righteousness. And when we're clothed in that garment, we're ready for heaven. 
Revelation chapter 7 depicts those that are there standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed clothed with white robes. But from the provision of that clothing there's also the prize because they're holding palms in their hands. Revelation 7 verse 9. Palms, you know, palm branches. What does that speak of? That speaks about victory and conquest. In heaven the citizens of glory are clothed in white robes and they've got palm branches in their hands. Heaven is a place of victory. Those who are there have overcome. Oh yes, while they were on the earth, even though they were Christians, they found at times that they were in defeat. They didn't lose the war, but they did lose a lot of the battles. They were defeated many times. But they didn't stay in defeat. And they've overcome. And they've made it to glory. And they now have the final victory over everything that would seek to bring them down. There's no more death. There's no more disease. There's no more despair and trouble with sin. They have obtained the victory. That's why they've got the palms of victory waving in their hands. The Christian faith, as has been said, is a victorious faith. The devil has a big L on his head. He's a loser. Those who are with Christ are the winners. The palm branches speak about that. They speak about the Christian's conquest. Now you know and I know that the devil loves to accuse us. He uses that tactic all the time, doesn't he? He reminds you of sins that you committed even years ago. Brings it up. Dredges it up. Remember that? Remember that? You did this. You did that. You didn't do this. You didn't do the other thing. He's the accuser of the brethren. But you see, when you go to the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll say, I don't know anything about those sins. What sins? They're all in the sea of my forgetfulness. They are remembered against you no more. What a great joy it is to know that. We have the victory through Christ. Whenever what they call Holy Week ended in the death of Christ, at the beginning of that, the Lord Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a beast in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, where it talked about the king coming, humble and riding on an ass, the fold, on a colt, the foal of an ass. And the Lord Jesus literally, as one said, stooped to conquer, riding on to Calvary to give the sinner who trusts in him the ultimate victory. And the crowd on that day might well have sensed that as they took branches of palm trees. And they waved those palms, didn't they? And they went out to meet him and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Well, they may not have known it fully, what they were saying, but they were extolling the triumphant one, the victorious one, one who went on to destroy death by dying, who rose from the dead on the third day, conquered the devil, 
and the hosts of hell. According to Colossians 2.15, he overcame principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in his cross. You know, everyone who's in Christ is partaker of that victory. We're on the victory side. It's always good to be on the winning side. And the Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about the resurrection, that death is swallowed up in victory. I could stand over my wife's grave and think about that. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? Thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that body going down into that grave, that's not the end. That's like a seed sown in the ground that one day will be harvested at the resurrection. What a day that will be when every believer who's buried in the ground, their body has their perfect soul reunited with that body and fitted for eternal glory. It's going to be a wonderful day. There's a graveyard, a cemetery, to put the polite name on it, back in Northern Ireland, where I'm from. And just about everybody I know that's buried in there was a professing believer. There's going to be some commotion come the day of the resurrection. I'm telling you. Those graves will be opened and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those that are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a victorious chapter, isn't it? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Very quickly, there's the proclamation in the fourth place. What is that proclamation? Revelation 7 verse 10 These people are saying something. In fact, they're shouting it. They cried with a loud voice. This is the proclamation. Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. They're extolling Him. They are exalting Him. Salvation belongs to our God. It actually means that the cause, the source, the origin of our salvation is God. They're giving glory to God for their salvation. They're not saying, as some foolish people do, well, God did his part and I did my part. No. Salvation to our God. He's the one who saves us. There's not one person who's going to be in heaven because of anything that they have done. They're going to be ascribing all of the glory to God. And that's what distinguishes the true faith from every other religion in this world. Every other religion is a religion of works. It's a religion of D.O. Do this, do that, do the other thing. And you might be saved. There's not even any assurance that you will. But that's your best shot. Do your best, live right, pay your way, be good to your neighbors and We'll see at the end of the day if that's good enough to outweigh your bad works. That's the hope that a lot of people have. And that's no hope. I'm glad that I could be like the Puritan and take all my good works and all my bad works 
and throw them overboard and float to heaven on the raft of free grace. Depending only on the salvation provided by my God. In every other religion, I say, men try to work their way to heaven. George Whitfield used to say, you might as well try to climb up to heaven on a rope made out of sand as to get there by your own works. No, we have a salvation that is proclaimed in Scripture that God himself has produced and provided and procured It's in the finished work of Christ on the cross for all who believe. As Jonah put it, salvation is of the Lord. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Old hymn writer had it right, didn't he? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply, To thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's it. That's my hope. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation, you'll notice here too, is is, uh, ascribed in this proclamation to God and to the Lamb. The members of the Trinity work in glorious harmony. That salvation that God planned, that the Son purchased, is applied by the Spirit. Salvation is due to sovereign grace, the sovereign will of God, and the sacrifice of our Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of God, from beginning to end. And that is why those who are in heaven are there. It's because of God's work. Notice that word that's used there when the question was asked in verse 13. What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? Who are these people and where did they come from? How did they get here? He said, sir, thou knowest. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're clothed in white robes, because their robes have been washed white. Therefore are they before the throne of God. That's the reason. Here it is. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. This is why they're in heaven. There's no other reason. Salvation is of God. That's the proclamation. And then, of course, finally, there's the praise. There's the praise of heaven. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunder to the ear, loud as waters, many noise, sweet as harps, melodious voice, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. You know what heaven is all about? It's about worship. This is what we read in this passage about people who are in heaven and they're engaged in something wonderful. It is worship. I'm always curious about those who here on the earth have no time for the worship of God. They don't want 
to worship God. They have no desire for the house of God. They seem to have no desire for the Word of God. And yet, strangely enough, they think that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. Now, how does that work? You never worship the Lord here on the earth. You're not interested in praying to Him or hearing what His Word has to say or having fellowship with His people. The things of God mean nothing to you. But all of a sudden, when you die, you're going to have this desire to be in a place which is nothing but worship of God. No, that's not how it works. And that's not what's going to happen either. If you're not a worshiper here, you'll never be a worshiper afterwards. The praise of God is what heaven is all about. Ceaseless worship. You don't like the Sabbath day on earth? You're going to have a real problem with heaven because heaven is an eternal Sabbath. Every day is the Lord's day because there are no days. It's eternity. God tells us that heaven is his throne. When you come to a throne, you bow before it. The word worship means to ascribe worth to. And as one said, true worship is based upon recognized greatness, and greatness is superlatively seen in sovereignty, and at no other footstool will men really worship. This is what people are doing in heaven. This is what my dear departed wife is now doing. Worshiping the Lamb. Serving the Lord. And it's remarkable to read in the book of Revelation about this great activity where people are constantly ascribing glory and praise to God. All the singing in heaven must be wonderful. Can you imagine? A multitude that no man can number, and they're all singing. Sometimes I've been in a big crowd, some very, very big crowds. Years ago when Dr. Paisley's ministry was held in the Ulster Hall in Belfast, a big public hall, when the Martyrs Memorial Church was filled with people, two and a half to three thousand people on a Sunday night, and they would start to sing it is well with my soul or something like that the hairs are standing on the back of my neck I've got goosebumps on top of my goosebumps it's a taste of heaven but that's going to be as nothing compared to what it will be to be there hearing the praise of God's people singing worthy is the lamb that was slain what a day that will be When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness. No pain. No more crying over there. Because forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Will you be there? That's the question I must always ask when I preach to any congregation of people. I would be 
not diligent in my work, I would be dilatory. I would be one who's guilty of negligence if I were not to always, as Spurgeon used to say, find a way to the cross in every message and seek to challenge people about their need of a saviour. Make your calling and election sure. One thing that every minister who's worth his salt wants is to see every face that sits before him again in glory. We want to see you all there. We want you over there, as the hymn puts it. We cannot leave you lost and lone. We want you over there. It would be a terrible thing to preach the gospel to people and then to find ultimately in that great day that they were lost, that they were without Christ, that they were without God, and to be consigned eternally to the caverns of the damned. What an awful, awful thing that would be. Oh, that each one of us might be able to rejoice as these people, this multitude, are doing right now, that one day we will join them and stand before that same throne wearing similar white robes, waving similar palms, and crying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I trust that each of us will be there by grace.